Hello and welcome to Down Home Fear, where we explore true crimes and strange happenings of the American South. My name is Keegan, and this is the 10th full-length episode of the show. Yay! Yay! Hi, Amy here, also, by the way. Yeah, Amy's back. Um, You may remember her from episode 7 and episode 8. So I'm really, really excited that we've made it to 10 full shows uh, before the end of the year. That was actually like a goal that I had in the back of my mind for this project. And it's it's just awesome that people are out there downloading them and listening and uh, from all over the world from all yeah like from like countries in europe that i've never heard of and like seriously like looking at the statistics um that we get through soundcloud and um in the dhf website is always really really interesting because of that but today we're going to be talking about cannibalism we have a historic story and then we also have a story from the recent past and for some reason, I was originally envisioning this as, like, a Christmas episode. Christmas cannibalism. <laughs> yeah, I think just because of the alliteration. It's a good call. I, I, was like, I was like, yeah, Christmas cannibalism. It has sort of a ring to it, but I, I think this is only very tangentially related to Christmas. It's, it's the timing. Just, yeah. Also, mine is winter-related. There so. you go. So we have kind of a winter tale of sorts. Exactly. And we were recording on the first day of winter. So Oh, really? Yeah, today's the first day of winter. I didn't know that. The more you know. Yeah, that's great. So let's get to the first topic. And so we'll have a story read by Amy about the colony of Jamestown. And then after that, we'll have a second story read by myself that has to do with... Um, Uh, Fayette County, West Virginia. All right, so let's get started. coast, predominantly the southeast or the mid-Atlantic, you likely went to Jamestown on a field trip, much like Keegan and I did in elementary school. We trekked through the mud because the geniuses behind the settlement decided a swamp was a great place to live, but I won't go too much into the background of Jamestown itself. Just know that if you like history, the Jamestown settlement is something you may want to pick a book a pick up a book or watch a documentary about. It's a very interesting foundational piece of our country. Anyway, uh, Jamestown was the first permanent English settlement in the New World. Here's what you need to know. This Virginia settlement was established in 1607 by about 100 English men and boys. The goal of the settlement was to gain resources, like the Spanish had with gold. Uh, Things were rough from the beginning. There were illnesses from mosquitoes, they had a fire destroying their provisions, and a severe drought. So all of those issues were faced in the first years at James Fort. So why did we pick this story? May have an idea. Uh, Things in Jamestown started to get grim in the winter of 1609 to 1610, or grimmer than they already were. Mm -hmm. Uh, More settlers had come since the original 100 in 1607, and they faced a few difficult issues in that winter. Uh, The most important being food shortages, and a high-stakes siege by Powhatan Indian warriors. So let's break it down. Food shortages were the biggest direct impact on the settlers that winter. The drought I mentioned earlier actually lasted for seven years. Oh my gosh. I know. I like. I read an article that was saying that they settled in the absolute worst period of time because it was right, right in the middle of this drought. It's terrible. It's a drought, yet you're in the middle of a swamp, and the water is pretty much unusable. Yeah, because it's brackish water. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like, you have all these mosquitoes, which bring disease that they're not used to. The water can be unusable, and they have a drought, which impacts their food sources. So everyone, including, like, the American Indian tribes that were there, 
were being impacted by this drought. Speaking of the American Indians, the settlers depended on trade with the Powhatan Confederacy, which were tribes under Chief Powhatan, uh, to gain food, but their relations were strained due to mistrust on both sides and retaliating violence, which you, if you know anything about this time period, or even seen the Disney movie Pocahontas, you might know. Not an accurate representation, by the way. Um, but what was accurate was that there was a lot of tension exactly. between the settlers and between the Native Americans who, who were living in that area. Yes, and part, like a big part of that was this drought. So the resources were already uh, few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, there was mistrust already from previous settlers. So like it, it was kind of a time bomb. Mm-hmm. From what I read, like J- John Smith who is famous, um, did a good job for a few years in maintaining trade relations, but kind of screwed it up later, and, like, things just continued to get worse. Mm -hmm. Um, So, in response to the struggle that they were having with supplies, the Virginia Company sent nine ships in the summer of 1609 with new colonists and enough supplies to last them through the winter. So with the drought and the struggling relations with their neighbors, these supplies would be crucial to Jamestown's survival. But because apparently no one can escape the cruel wrath of Mother Nature, mm-hmm. the ships were severely damaged when they were hit with a hurricane. The largest ship, the Sea Venture, was shipwrecked on Bermuda. It, of course, had most of the supplies. In August 1609, some of the ships that were impacted arrived at Jamestown with a few supplies and 300 more colonists. Oh, no. Yeah. Also, just like a cool side note about this, the Sea Ventures shipwreck was what is thought to be the inspiration for The Tempest, Shakespeare's The Tempest. So, I'm sorry. I don't know what that is. (laughs) Okay. Recommend you read it or maybe see the play. It's good. I'm not familiar with the classics like you are. So I thought that was a cool factoid. Uh, Anyway, so while the remaining ships brought more supplies, they also brought more mouths to feed, 300 more mouths, and rats, which further cut into their supplies to survive the winter. Uh, To add to this, Chief Powhatan also issued, issued an order to his warriors to kill the colonists' livestock and any colonists outside of the safety of the fort walls. Um, so I'm sure you're asking, where is the true crime portion of this? Why did we decide to go so far back in history? Keegan, what do you do when you run out of food, are cut off from trading to obtain food, and are essentially trapped in place with other people? Well, I would imagine that it possibly may cross your mind to consume other people. Yes, so what I was going to say is, you begin to eat things you normally wouldn't, or you starve. Okay, I I just went directly to that. (laughs) Knowing the theme of the episode. (laughs) Fair enough. I I was was biased. I was, okay. Um, But, but, yeah, so so they they had no supplies, and they were probably reduced to eating the... I, you know, the leather shoes or equipment that they brought with them. Good call. So there were 500 people. And just for your reference, this winter is called the starving times. So just to give you a hint of where we're going. Um, a man named George Percy became a leader of the fort when the famous John Smith, who I also just want everybody to know, if I was going to do a podcast about like crazy, ridiculous people, he would be at the top of my list. This guy's nuts. Really? Um, yeah, he's got a really cool backstory, um, which I won't go into here. I, and just to um, establish, because you, you, you kind of alluded to it earlier, but John Smith was what, like the first kind of like major leader that rose up? He was, I think, the second leader, because he came in and improved things. Okay. Um, he, but yeah, he was a leader in the group. Um, he did work with the Powhatan Confederacy um, to help with the trading. Um, but he's he's kind of strong-armed them a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he's like a big character. So he's okay. got big stories behind him. Um, and part of this was he actually returned to England um, in that fall uh, due to a mysterious gunpowder injury. 
1609? Yeah, so he left the fall right before, quote-unquote, the starving time, so lucky him. Yeah, good time to get out of there. (laughs) With a mysterious gunpowder injury. Right. Um, So the account I'm about to give is from a letter written by the new leader, George Percy, 16 years after the fact. I translated it from old-timey English just so it's a little bit easier um, for me to read right now because how many extra consonants can a word have? Right. Um, but maybe I can post the original letter to the Facebook group just in yeah, case one, people are Yeah, 100%. Um, we can put that on the website and on the Facebook group so people Perfect. can find uh, the full original document there. Old-timey. So he said, in so many words, um, Having fed upon our horses and other beasts as long as they lasted... We were glad to make shift with vermin as dogs, cats, rats, and mice, as to eat boots, shoes, or any other leather. So you actually did a really good job calling the boots and the leather. Yeah. Um, well, it's only because I've heard that before oh, um, okay. with, like, stories in World War Two in uh, Stalingrad and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. it was, like, not really similar, but they were extreme survival situations where cannibalism and... Uh, eating rats, eating vermin, eating your shoes. Those were all just examples of the many horrors that people had to resort to. Yeah. So uh, in addition to resorting to eating these things, the colonists started getting diseases like dysentery, which was made life within the walls even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, Percy, sorry, Percy also wrote, quote, Indians killed as fast without the fort as famine and pestilence did within. So we talked a little bit about the disease, um, and they're starving, so they're starting to move down the line. But the Indian part is that apparently, and this is from more of his letters, when colonists went out in search of food past the safety of the walls, they looked for food such as snakes and roots, because um, that's how desperate they were getting. Mm-hmm. But they were also killed uh, due to that command from the chief of him mm-hmm. um, by these warriors. So the siege basically rendered them incapable of getting any external food and also rendered them incapable of getting any external help from mm-hmm. other colonies or anybody else in the area. So these col- colonists turned from the regular sources of food, like livestock, to going out to finding food. When it became clear that scavenging outside the fort was not an option, they started eating, quote, vermin, mm-hmm. which they included dogs and cats as vermin, which totally broke my heart because... It was different back then. I know. I know. Um, so that was not enough for the group of 500 to make it through the winter. Um, Percy continues in this letter and says, And now famine began to look ghastly and pale in every face that nothing was spared to maintain life and do those things which seemed incredible, as to dig up dead corpses out of the grave and to eat them. And some had licked upon the blood which had fallen from their weak fellows. So yes, you heard that right. The people who helped build the very foundation of America as we know it now only did so because they became cannibals. Um, Wait, what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by what? The, oh, you mean like cannibalism helped sustain them, and otherwise they would have died out. Yeah, they okay. would have. They would have completely like they would not have made it through the winter if they weren't digging up right. dead people, or I guess, yeah, um, licking the blood of their weak fellows. Yeah. Um. So other accounts outside of Percy's also detail the spiral from livestock to eating their fallen comrades, um, after the sources were used up, uh, but it wasn't just digging up already dead people that was a source of food for them. Uh, In another account that was written by some of the survivors, uh, they tell a story about how a man killed his wife while she slept. He cut her into pieces. He salted her, like how you salt meat to Mm -hmm. keep it. Um, It's like a common way of doing it because they didn't have a refrigerator. Yeah, to preserve it. Yeah, so he salted her and then ate her except for her head. Um, and then he was, quote, apparently, like, he was, quote, justly executed in response for that crime. Okay. So I thought that that was, like, a really interesting story because it's way more violent. And when I think of cannibalism, that is what comes to mind. is like a intent to kill 
to then eat. Whereas the other accounts, it really seemed like desperation because they mm-hmm. were eating people who had already died. So uh, some of the accounts talked about them eating people who had died because they were killed by Indians. Um, I'm not sure if they had the had the opportunity to avoid eating people who died from sickness because one would imagine that that would continue. Like, yeah. you don't eat people who are sick because you would get sick. Um, but I didn't see anything about that. So that was, it, like, this story about the murder jumped out at me and really creeped me out. Um, I wonder if they ate him after he was executed. I think that he was burned. Really? Um, yeah, so, like, I don't re- I didn't write down the source for this, but when I was researching, uh, they talked about him being hung by his, if this is the same person, him being hung by his thumbs and then burned. So... I'm not. Well, that's not really. Yeah. Um, so while there were, there was evidence of butchered animal bones in Jamestown to support, uh, you know, the fact that they were killing their animals and it points to this severe hunger. Mm-hmm. There was no evidence of cannibalism specifically outside of the written accounts until relatively recently. So in 2012, Jamestown archaeologists uncovered the first forensic evidence of survival cannibalism in a European colony in North America. So survival cannibalism, I think that that's like the key distinction here is obviously these weren't just serial killers who were out to eat. Like this is survival cannibalism to the point where, you know, they were doing this because they had to. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I thought that was like a a good point to make. So the uh, evidence that they found were bones. Um, they were butchered skull and the shin bone of a 14-year-old English girl who re- researchers named Jane. So if you look this up, you'll find Jane. Um, Jane's diet reflected a grain diet, which indicated she was only recently over from England before she died. And her teeth indicate that she was either well-off or the maid of a well-off family, just so you have some background on that. Um, Douglas Olsley, who was a Smithsonian forensic anthropologist who worked on this, because it was, uh, I think, Preserve Virginia, Colonial Williamsburg, and the Smithsonian who worked specifically on Jane. Um, So, Olsley says that the cut marks on these bones reveal cannibalism. He said that there was a clear intent to remove the facial tissue and the brain for consumption. Mm -hmm. Um, He said these people were in dire circumstances, so any flesh that was available would have been used. So just like you said, like the brain was removed, the tongue was also removed, which was apparently, the tongue was common in recipes back then. I know it's not something we eat very frequently here Um, in the US. Apparently in a lot of Asian cultures, and even like in American, it's a good organ meat. Yeah. It's um, it's like, like a lot of people do continue to eat it as an organ meat. It's supposed to be very nutritious. Not something I've ever eaten. Me neither, but apparently some people do. And so is this the um photo that I'm, I'm, I feel like I saw a photo on CNN or something, and it was in regard to this, and it, it's like a human skull. And there is literally like a two-inch... It's a big like gash thing. Yeah, in so... The, in the forehead. I can link to... So what, there's a 3D reproduction of her, what she would look like mm-hmm. from that. And we can also show what the actual bones look like. Like, we can link to that. Because I thought that was forensically nerdy. I thought it was very interesting. <laughs> um, so, Osley, this forensic anthropologist, also stated that the person who removed her flesh didn't know how to butcher an animal just based off of how it was doing. Mm -hmm. He said you can see, quote, the hesitancy, trial, tentativeness, and total lack of experience. So again, this points to that survivalism where they were just doing this because they had to potentially, um, or it, it doesn't appear that she was murdered. Um, nothing will in this points to her being murdered. Huh, so all, all the uh, injuries and stuff were post-mortem? Yes, because that, and that points to that whole lack of experience. So um, we weird. don't know how So maybe she, she just died. had a heart attack or something. It could have been, yeah. There are so many, so many ways somebody could have passed away during this winter. Um, and it's clear that they just took what they could from her to survive. And mm-hmm. I think... That he specifically says, like, hesitancy 
and again that points to this is this was all about survival like they had to do this to keep going they didn't necessarily want to and it ties back into that like very few people are okay with cannibalism for a specific reason it's really hard to bring that yeah it was an absolute last resort exactly um so moving on towards the spring uh our our old friend the sea venture arrived in jamestown that's right those who didn't die or disappear in the wreck in bermuda helped rebuild and made their way to Jamestown. <laughs> that is insane. It's crazy. That is so cool. Uh, so there they found only 60 colonists who were left alive. So 500 to 60. What? Yeah. That's crazy. I'm not entirely sure on the first number. I am it, entirely so, sure. Wait, so you know I'm not good at math, but that's like over 75% yeah, no, of people died, right? Way too many people. Yeah, no, you're spot on like... I, Way over uh, There were different numbers for how many people were there at the beginning, but the 60 was like the final number at the end of this. So from 500 down to 60. Yeah. That is a crazy rate of mortality. Yeah, it's absurd. So a leader from the Sea Venture, Thomas Gate, who's a name you may recognize if you're into American history, um, he realized that there was going to be further starvation if they stayed. So he took everybody and he was like, all right, guys, let's go back to England and abandon Jamestown. Might as well at that yeah. point. <laughs> do, do you really want to stay? Seriously. So he was like, all right, let's go. And I guess on their way out, the new governor of Jamestown, who was sent over from England, like blocked their escape, essentially, and was like, come on, we got to go rebuild. So they all went back in the summer of, this all happened in like the late spring, early summer of uh, 1610. Mm-hmm. So Jamestown went on to be an important stepping stone in the U.S. becoming the nation that we are today. Um, but I'm not going to go into all that history stuff. My question to wrap this up is with Jamestown's survival cannibalism, where do you place this on the spectrum of true crime? Outside of the murder with intent to eat, um, these incidences of maybe digging up corpses, de- desecration of a body. Um, is it is it a crime? or Given the can, circumstances. Given the circumstances. Yeah. Or could this be excused um, based on the fact that it was pure survival? So something to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe also consider outside of the historical context, like mm-hmm. today, if there is some sort of extreme circumstance how would we deal with that how how that resulted in acts of cannibalism for survival you know how would we deal with it and and maybe would they write a book like these people did yeah i mean what would happen and i guess maybe if the story of jamestown isn't true crime i mean there was the incident of the man murdering his wife that's true crime outside of that Perhaps it's more true horror. True horror. Like the dark underbelly of the roots of America. Exactly. The roots of the American South. Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, thanks uh, thanks for walking us through it and helping us kind of digest some of this. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm not even doing this intentionally. Uh, that was so bad. Helping us. I think you should keep it. <laughs> okay. Helping us make sense of these uh these events For the second story, we're going to be talking about the Mad Butcher of Fayette County. This is a, what I've come to realize is a a very obscure story from West Virginia. It takes place... I've never heard of it, Most people haven't. 
and it takes place in the 1960s uh, in Fayette County, West Virginia. It's in the southern part of the state. It's right up in the Blue Ridge Mountains, very beautiful and picturesque and all of that, but it's also very rural. In the 1960s, it had a population of about 61,000 people. And that's spread throughout the entire 668 square mile area. So it's a pretty, pretty uh, small community when you look at it through that lens. And that population, 61,000, was actually its historic high. So it's gone down since then. Maybe this story had something to do with that. Who knows? Anyhow. Between 1962 to 1965, at least three men were slaughtered by an attacker who has never been officially caught. And that attacker had been dubbed over the years the Mad Butcher. The first believed victim of the Mad Butcher was Ernest Gwynn, and he disappeared on July 3rd, 1962, after leaving a local diner called Four Minute Lunch. It was in a town called Oak Hill, which is in Fayette County. He was sitting there one night, he had a meal, and he left and was never seen again. Police did not take his disappearance seriously because he was a single male who was in his late 60s and who lived at a boarding house and just happened to have recently cashed a pension check. So I, I can actually understand that, you know, the authorities hear about this and you know he's an old guy he went to he moved on he moved to a different town yeah yeah i guess like 1960s different time too yeah like, it's not like he's gonna like post on facebook or something and be like hey i'm moving out of state don't worry about me you know but about three months later a, another man 33 year old sammy smith disappeared one night while walking home also from the four minute lunch diner Police, again, did not take the disappearance seriously, maybe because, you know, these are, these are grown men, it's the 1960s, and communication just wasn't the same as it was now. You know, I bet in that area with the, with the nature of the industry there, you know, it was a lot of coal mining and things like that, they probably had people coming and leaving all, all the time. Was this gentleman also single? I believe so. He, okay. he, he, I don't know for sure if he was single, but I do know he was living with his uh, parents at the time. So I, I would assume he was That's a single man. That's interesting, because I, I, like, I could just um, off the bat assume he would also be single and also be like living alone like the other man. Mm-hmm. Do you know if the parents kicked up a fuss or I, I I don't there's not a whole lot of information out mm-hmm. there about this story and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later but what what I do know is that just three months after the disappearance of Ernest Gwynn Sammy Smith also disappeared while coming home from the four-minute lunch in Oak Hill West Virginia but later that year someone of note went missing someone who and i don't mean to be disrespectful to ernest gwynn or sammy smith but i mean this was someone who wasn't just like a a random guy who seemed to have moved away it was a kid who you know just a 19 year old kid who was pretty well known in the community and people took notice when he just kind of vanished one day his name was mike rogers And he was, like I said, a 19-year-old young man, and he was a ward of the state. So he was living with a foster family. He had some sort of mental disability. So he was well-known. He was known to be like a really kind of upbeat, enthusiastic guy, really friendly. Everyone seemed to like him. And... He, he was often described as a uh, quote-unquote lovable character. Hmm. On December 19th, 1962, Rogers was seen riding in the passenger seat of a black station wagon with Ohio license plates. And I am getting this information from an article that is kind of confusingly written, so this next part was a little unclear to me, but either a friend noticed Rogers walking on the side of the road after getting out of the vehicle or he saw rogers in the vehicle 
and Rogers like jumped out of the vehicle and darted over to the friends who who was driving on the other side of the road. Okay. So in any case, there's this friend of Rogers's. Sees him associated with the car, and the guy gets out. I think so. That's the way I, I read it, but again, like it's a little unclear. There's not a whole lot of information out there about this. So in any case, Rogers runs up to his friend's car and like, um, like forcibly, like just like rips open the the door and is like, "Hey, like you gotta get me out of here, get me out of here." And he's like, really, really, um, he said angry. Like the the guy in the car said that he seemed angry and that it kind of like seemed really unlike him usually he's so calm and upbeat and everything but he actually just told him you know like hey man chill out i'm running errands right now i'll come back in a half hour and pick you up rogers was never seen again oh no i would feel really bad if i was that guy i'm sure that dude just hated himself after uh what ended up happening which was Eight, day, eight days later, a young boy discovered a human arm on the hillside of Chimney Corner, which is an unincorporated community in the northern part of Fayette County. That's scarring for life. Yeah, and on that note, this next section actually does get pretty graphic, so if you're not, if you're sensitive to descriptions of gore, you may want to skip over this part. Um, cops are called, and they arrive and they do a search of the area, and they find a trail of body parts scattered across the hill that the human arm was found on. At the bottom of the hill, they find a U.S. Navy duffel bag full of human organs, price tags from a store in Ohio, and Mike Rogers' severed head. No! Yeah. Oh, no! Yeah. There There was also a 22 caliber bullet that was found in the duffel bag. Like, a fired bullet or an unfired? It didn't say. It said that it was a damaged bullet, so I would, I don't know if that means that it was unfired and there was, like, a defect that prevented it from being used, or if it had been fired and was, like, deformed after being shot. Yeah. Wait, can we talk about the price tags for a second? Because sure. that's a very strange, like, are you talking about price tags, like, like, off of clothing? Or, like, stick-on price tag? Yeah, you know, just like a like a price tag you would see on a article of clothing or a, and there were like, just object like, in a store. A collection of them in this bag with the organs? I don't know if it was a collection, per se, but it was multiple price tags uh, from, from, the state of, from a store that was located in the state of Ohio. That is so strange. That's so strange. Yeah, I guess it's really all they had to go off of though and mike rogers had been killed execution style and then he had apparently been hung by the neck while being dismembered they found a um basically like rope marks around his neck so it suggested he had been hung by his neck but they're thinking it's post-mortem but yeah post-mortem and you know he was hung by his neck while while being butchered his body was in 13 pieces the coroner stated that the liver and kidney, two of the organs that were found in the duffel bag, had a chewed appearance to them, suggesting that the killer had attempted to eat the organs raw. Ew! Yeah. Uh, eventually, the cops contacted the Navy about the bag, and I guess it had like a man's name stitched on it or something like that, and the Navy tracked it to a guy who was living in Michigan. That man said that he had lost the bag on a Greyhound bus somewhere between Michigan and South Carolina in 1959. He said he remembered stopping in West Virginia during that trip, but wasn't sure if he had lost the duffel bag there. Hmm. This part is also uncomfortable, so just, you've been warned. Uh, But, so, due to unusual incisions on Rogers' penis, the cops rounded up ten gay men who had been, I know, yeah, it's pretty horrible. They, They rounded up ten gay men in the community who had been suspected of sodomy, so it's just like, come on, pretty... 1960s. Uh, yeah, just the... That's ridiculous. Yeah, terrible that those men were just stereotyped like that. 
one of these men who they had randomly rounded up on, I guess, suspicion of being gay was a man named Estel Snyder. And he did turn out to be a somewhat convincing lead. When the cops searched his car, he had a bloody axe, a butcher knife, and a hacksaw. Yeah, those would be clues. Right. But he not only had those items, he also had been employed at a Greyhound bus stop in 1959, which is when the duffel bag went missing. Snyder insisted that he had been out of the state at the time of the murder of Mike Rogers, and he also insisted that the tools were used for freelance butchering work, which I kind of, I kind of believe. Yeah, I was also wondering because like I mean, this is rural West Virginia. Yeah, so I was wondering about hunting because yeah. the way you were described, like again, this is gruesome and horrible, uh, but the way you were talking about how. Um, Mike Rogers had been uh, hung up mm-hmm. like that isn't that's how they butcher pigs. Well, usually you would hang him by their uh, <laughs> speaking in terms of butchering an animal. Yes. Like uh, you hang them by their legs, oh, and okay. and the head would actually be hanging down. Okay, I did not know that. I know very little about butchering. Yeah, I mean, I've never personally butchered an animal, but I watch a lot of hunting shows, so that's that's how they do it. Okay. <laughs> Coming at you with the knowledge. Right. And, and so anyway, <laughs> uh, rural West Virginia, I, um, I believe it would have been around uh, deer hunting or maybe bear hunting season at that point in time. Remember, this happened in late autumn uh, in, uh, in December when, is when uh, Mike Rogers' body was found. And, and so, yeah, I, I think that there's probably a lot of guys who would have had similar equipment in the backs of their truck for, uh, for hunting and other legitimate purposes. But after he was questioned by the police, there was a bunch of, like, just, like, kind of, like, he said, she said bullshit. Like, someone claimed that Snyder had actually molested him at gunpoint and that... It's got crazy real fast. Yeah, I, I know. And there was also suspicious rope that was found in Snyder's car, but he, he was never formally charged. A couple of weeks later, Snyder turned himself into Fayette County Jail, saying that he didn't want to hurt anyone, and he just needed to be incarcerated, I guess, for like the public's best interest or something, but he didn't say that I don't want to hurt anyone else or I don't want to kill again or something like that. He just said that he didn't want to hurt anyone. So um, he he was voluntarily entered in the Fayette County Jail, um, but he he was never formally charged and he committed suicide shortly thereafter uh, and the case remained open. About six months later, in 1963, Ernest Gwynn's skull, uh, presumably, they they found a skull that had had similar dental work to Ernest Gwynn. They found it by some railroad tracks in Thurman, West Virginia, and that was like the only evidence they found suggesting that Ernest Gwynn had been killed, because he just disappeared. Like, they never found body parts or anything. They just, you know... Um, eventually found that skull with the matching dental work. Toward the end of that year, 1963, a man named Shirley Jean Arthur went missing. So it was a male. His name was Shirley. I know that can be confusing. He had been at his girlfriend's house practicing for an upcoming gospel concert, which is just like a really weird random fact that they have in the article that I read. But yeah, he was, he was with his girlfriend practicing for an upcoming gospel concert and shared a yellow apple with her before walking home around 1 a.m. That's very specific details in the article. Well, just wait, because... Oh, okay. Shirley was last seen hitchhiking to a nearby town later that night, trying to get back from his uh, girlfriend's place. Now, fast forward a few days... A young boy, Leonard Sizemore, who was in his teens, he wasn't really that young, he was a teenager, and he was with his brother and a couple of friends, and lo and behold, he saw a dead pig, what he thought was a dead pig, on a hillside in Wyoming County, 
which is near uh, Fayette County. It's just south of Fayette County, actually. He and his friends went to examine it because they were like, oh, hey, a dead pig. Let's go check that out. Again, West Virginia, the 60s. And unfortunately, they realized that it was actually Shirley Arthur's torso wrapped in tarp and secured with mining explosive wire. Like, was it connected to an explosive? No, no, like, it was just, like, used to wrap up the tarp around, oh, okay. the, around the body. And it was just his torso, so it was missing the head and arms and legs and everything. Oh, okay. uh, Sizemore later described the incident as upsetting at the time. Yeah, I, I could understand that completely. I feel like I'm even just you, listening to this is upsetting. I can't imagine being, like, a child and... Oh, man. Coming across this. Yeah, it would be absolutely horrifying. You know, that was actually, like, one of my biggest fears when I was a kid <laughs> oh. was finding, like, a like a butchered torso in the woods. I feel like you watched too much Law & Order as a kid. No, I it was Forensic Files. There was this oh, okay. episode of Forensic Files that I saw when I was, like, way too young to be watching Forensic Files. And it was, like, a similar situation. There was, like, a woman's, like, torso found in a trash. Anyway, it was, like, terrible. Yeah. Terrible. An autopsy revealed that the body had yellow apple in its stomach, and that's how they knew that it must have been Shirley Arthur. Hmm. Uh, but a autopsy also revealed that the kidney was missing. So remember, the kidney was one of the organs that had been taken and uh, chewed, chewed attempted to have been consumed uh, from the uh, Mike Rogers, who had been abducted and killed about a year earlier his heart had 19 puncture wounds in it similar to buckshot but no buckshot was found lodged in the body which you would expect because buckshot is like really tiny little yeah. bbs basically so i was thinking maybe with like an ice pick or something uh. that that could have left similar wounds i guess i'm, I'm not a coroner so uh, but that's just one no. thing that came to mind Around this time, other people went missing in Fayette County as well, but they were officially disconnected from the Mad Butcher murder. One of them was a man named Lou Bennett, who was last seen having a meal at the four-minute lunch. His, this place is bad. Yeah, in, in 1963, at, at the four-minute lunch, Lou Bennett was last seen there, and his remains ended up being found two years later near some railroad tracks, and had been blown to pieces by dynamite in what was officially ruled a suicide. What? Lou Bennett was an uncle of my maternal grandmother. Huh. She, so he, she remembered him very fondly and said that uh, he was, you know, her favorite uncle and that oh, every, everyone really liked him. Yeah, so my grandma just uh, sent me an email about this yesterday mm-hmm. when I told her that this was the story I was working on. Uh, she says that everyone thought it was complete bullshit, that it was um, a, a suicide. Yeah, suicide by dynamite is... It's pretty crazy. Yeah, like unbelievable crazy. Yeah, it, it, it was... Um, so that's another death that may have been connected to the mad butcher case Hmm. um also just another side note uh my grandma also said that she thinks that the owner of the four minute lunch was actually behind these killings oh is this her conspiracy theory i don't know if it's like a conspiracy theory but apparently she just thought the guy was uh sketchy oh she so she had been to the four minute lunch she like grew yeah like my my, uh yeah so on uh, my mom's side of the family uh both both of my grandparents are from like that area of West Virginia, like born and born and raised, and and they've moved many times over the years. But like they're, uh, you they know, knew the four minutes. They lunch. they knew they knew like a ton of people down there, and and they live back in that area today. Hmm. So yeah, so she, that's her theory. Um, and uh, or, or maybe not the butcher himself, but at least like connected somehow because. All these people keep going to this diner yeah, and disappearing. Yeah, it's weird. Like, the, it, that makes no sense. Unless it was a hub for people who were constantly passing through and it was, like, well-known that you could just grab someone. But... I, I guess, yeah. I 
To me, that sounds incredibly sketchy. I'm trusting your grandma on yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. So, in 1964, you know, the years are going on at this point. Uh, it's now two years after the initial disappearances. Uh, more suspects come up, and the case sort of gains a little bit more attention, and so there's different conspiracy theories about who's involved, kind of running amok. But the most compelling suspect in the eyes of the police came in November of 1964. It was a guy named Hugh Montgomery, and he was arrested for destruction of property at a local hospital after charging into the reception area and demanding to be hired as a doctor. And then when, pe- when the people who worked at the hospital were like, dude, get out of here, he returned with a sledgehammer and began just like smashing stuff. That's scary. Yeah, and he was arrested, and police found three guns, a knife, a duffel bag, and a meat grinder in his car and in his house. Okay. Was he a doctor? He, like, actually, or just... So, well, he, he's clearly very mentally ill, but he did go to medical school for one year, and he had worked as a physician in the Air Force at one point. Oh, okay. Yeah, so... That's uh, that's something to think about. Now, the police questioned him, and he admitted to having committed several murders, oh but, but stressed that he was not the mad butcher. He said that, actually, a group of executioners were after him, and he killed them in self-defense and chopped up the bodies so they would, quote, stay dead. He also said that he ground up the human kidneys and sold them to local butchers as proper meat, and that many locals had likely consumed the human organ meat that had been sold in stores in the Fayette County area. Oh my god. That's so disgusting. Oh my god. Oh, yeah. that's horrific. That's like... It's pretty pretty gnarly. Real life Sweeney Todd. Yeah, right? Oh my god, that, that makes me sick to my stomach. I'm sorry. Ew. Also, side note, this is kind of like when I was looking up examples of modern cannibalism, I read the story about a guy who had a dinner party and served spaghetti with meatballs, and the meatballs were made out of his own fat. What? That was removed from liposuction. That's disgusting. Disgusting. Oh my god. I know. Okay. Do you think that's more or less disgusting than kidneys being sold to butchers? Um, I guess less disgusting because like people know where it came from i guess and like like he didn't nobody died in the process oh nobody died in the process of obtaining the meatballs whereas the the guy murdered people to get the kidney meat like uh, neither are a good option for me. It's so disgusting. Do you like? Do you know when and where that happened? If people were was, trying to find it, like it find the, the story. Two thousands. I will. I'll see if I can find it. Cause I yeah, I was looking for modern examples of cannibalism, and like that, that's kind of on the line for me. Like, mm-hmm. is it cannibalism? Cause it's fat from a like. No, it's definitely cannibalism. It is. Cause yeah. like, why well, don't like think of cannibalism as being like the person had to. Have, you know, passed away. Like it, right? No. Okay. Have you watched the TV show Hannibal? I think I watched the first episode and then I got creeped out. It's a very creepy show, but there's some pretty choice scenes of um, of Hannibal portrayed by Mads Mikkelsen, I think is his name. Uh, anyway, he uh, and it, uh, consuming people while they're still alive. <gasps> no. Oh, that is so gross. So, according to this TV show, it's possible. Okay. Um, Well, I'm disgusted either way. Right. Back on track. Back on track. Um, So, he he made these claims. He said that the human organ meat had been sold to stores in the area. Um, The Air Force ended up confirming that because he he was a physician in the Air Force at um, the period of time that Mike Rogers went missing and they said that he had been on duty in ohio at the time of mike rogers's death weird though with the ohio price tags yeah and the other thing is and this is i i had to make a couple of assumptions when researching this so this may not be accurate but like the only major air force base in ohio is um 
is located in Dayton, Dayton, Ohio, which is about a four-hour drive from uh, Fayette County. So... But what... Okay. So it would be, like, very... Like, four hours is not a long drive. It would be pretty easy. Yeah, but, like, what... Would you just pop in your head one day, like, I'm going to drive to this random county in West Virginia? Well, he, he had family there. He oh. was from a... Pro- okay, here's another point. He, that is important. He was from a prom- once prominent, once wealthy local family. Okay. It was well-known in Fayette County. This makes so much more sense. Okay. Yeah, so, like, maybe he just knew the area better, and those were, like, his old stomping grounds or whatever. Um, but so, who knows if he was actually on duty that night. He he was described at the time of his arrest as a drifter who had grown delusional after being scorned by a lover. Okay. Montgomery was sent to a psychiatric facility shortly after his arrest, and doctors evaluated him and said he was paranoid and homicidal with homosexual tendencies. Okay. Right, yeah. So that's their diagnosis. I mean, at the time... uh, Were they just trying to connect it with the fact that the victims were all men? Or... I don't know. I I mean, it wasn't until the late 60s or early 70s that homosexuality stopped being classified as a mental illness. That's so ridiculous. Yeah, which is really sad and fucked up, but, like... Concise. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm not not to like mince words or anything, uh, but so yeah, paranoid and homicidal with homosexual tendencies, and he again was never formally charged for the murders, and he was ultimately transferred to a facility in Ohio by his family without the consent of the police. So over the years, Montgomery was bounced around between different states and different mental hospitals. The book I read noted that five additional torso murders have occurred within a few miles of Montgomery's uh, known locations over the years. Are you kidding me? In West Virginia, Texas, and Oklahoma. Is he still alive? It is thought that he died in the early 2000s. What do you mean? What do you mean thought? Like, they don't know. Like, he, he... I mean, he's basically off the grid... Except for when he's in mental institutions. Oh, so he, you're saying he was released? From- yeah, like he he wouldn't he wasn't it wasn't like a prison or like a like secure psychiatric treatment center. Oh it, no. Yeah, so he was kind of just like bouncing around, living on the lamb, I guess. That is horrific. He. Yeah, so an example of this is he was first released from the hospital in Dayton, Ohio, in August of 1966. And shortly after, police discovered a dismembered body 25 miles away from the hospital. And similar patterns have occurred throughout his travels across the city. Are you kidding me? Yeah. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. I agree with you. And he was never arrested? Never arrested, never caught, never sentenced for murder or even assault or anything like that, as far as I I know. He is uh, suspected that he died in the early 2000s. So there was, like, one person, the last name was Bragg, and they apparently did a whole book on this case, and it was released in the early 90s. And the author of that book in a more recent interview said that he's pretty sure that Hugh Montgomery died um, about like 12 years ago. Hmm. So. That's a crazy story. Yeah. And that book um, that I got the information for this story from is called Myths of the Mountains, the Folk Tales the ghost stories, and the urban legends from the hills of West Virginia. Hmm. So if you want to page through that, you know, give it a look. It's a really, really easy read. The book is like 80 pages long and just has short articles about various local stories from West Virginia. My grandma sent it to me. That's, that's <laughs> very sweet. Yeah, so, so I, that's where I got this story from. So I have a question for you. Hit me. Do you agree that Hugh Montgomery was behind the murders, or do you think it was someone else? Um, I think that based on 
the facts that we have been given in the past like half hour, <laughs> it seems like he would kind of be the choice guy for the job just based on the fact that all of these bodies followed his wake. That's yeah. ridiculous. But I mean, some of it is like there. A lot of it is like major metropolitan areas too. Yeah. Like Dayton, Ohio, is a pr- pretty big metropolitan area. But like, dismembered, court like. Yeah, I don't know what like the average rate of dismembered bodies to be found in Dayton, Ohio is. That's so. probably a good statistic to not know off the top of your head. Yeah. But just based off of that information that we have available, to me, it seems like yeah, he probably did it. Maybe. There was some involvement from somebody who knew the four-minute lunch place really well. Yeah. Because um, it seems really sketchy to me that all these people are getting picked off near yeah. there. Um, so something weird is with that. I agree with your grandma. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he makes sense for what we have available for uh, for us now with information. Right. Also, there's a real dearth of information out there about this case. And the information that I could find was, like I mentioned during the story, I I mean, there's little sections in these articles that are just, like, not well written. Like, they're Mm -hmm. difficult to, like, figure out what the author was trying to explain. Or oddly specific. (laughs) Yeah, or oddly specific about gospel practices. (laughs) Yeah, so... um, I guess that's it for this uh, this story. So, thanks. Yeah, no, that was incredibly interesting, but very disturbing. Yeah, so. I, abs- absolutely. I apologize if anyone was upset by some of those descriptions. I know I they were a little rough. I was upset by the sausage. That specifically yeah. freaked me out. I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> All right. So, Amy, yes. why do you think cannibalism is so disturbing to us? So, I think part of that has to do with our natural survival instinct. Um, we want to survive, and the, uh, the confronting the idea of death in such a visceral way is disturbing for anyone. I also think it has something to do with us, us thinking of our physical form as being connected with that survival, like you're alive, physical form, imagining a dead body and that physical form being consumed um, is very disturbing to a, to me. I can say that about me, but I'm sure a lot of other people... I'd say people, most people would think yeah, that's disturbing. Because like that, that is uh, like true death, especially uh, there might be some religious reasons. I know there's some religious groups that believe... Um, your body must remain intact. Like, there are people who will not be cremated. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's, that's an extra layer for people who hold those beliefs um, where it's just extra disturbing. And I also, like, if you look at another person, you have empathy for that person. Like, the idea of not only, like, them being dead, but also, like, murdering them and eating them is just incredible. Like, you can't even think that way. Like, yeah, I cannot yeah, I bring mean, myself to think about ever doing something like that. Right, I mean, it's a mutilation. Exactly. It's inherently an act of mutilation um, in, in some way. Yeah, and think about human beings. Like, there are human beings who choose to be vegetarian because they're upset about killing animals. Mm-hmm. So take that a step further into the human zone. Like, we make a choice. There are some people who make the choice not to eat animals. Like, human nature is not meant to eat other humans. Like, we're just not meant to do that. Right. At least that's my interpretation. Mm-hmm. I know maybe there are some groups that believe otherwise, but... I'm sure there's all sorts of, um, not just social causes, but evolutionary causes as well. Like, there's yeah. something... There's some... Like, in most cultures in the world, it's not normal or approved of to eat other humans yeah. you know what i mean so there, there's probably like some sort of like 
deep biological instinct for like the preservation of our species and yeah, everything exactly. not to resort to acts of cannibalism. And there's also potentially a disease-driven reason. Like you, if someone passes away, it's not safe. Like even if you think about like an animal that you might eat, like a cow. Mm-hmm. If a cow passes away and you eat the cow, like decide to eat the cow two days after it passes away of natural causes, like what was wrong with that cow. So you can right. translate to that to a human as well, like if you depending on the situation where you are eating a person. So there's so many levels of why this is wrong to so many people. Right. Um obviously there there are different there's some groups of people who believe that consuming a person uh passes their soul off. Like that that tribe in South America that believes that. So that like that's a religious reason. So there are some groups that might believe it's okay, but I'm willing to say right now that most human beings believe it is wrong for the myriad of re- like any of the reasons that we have just listed out. Right. Okay. So th- there's just a myriad of different... Yeah, and like an inherent wrongness to it. Like it makes yeah. me sick to my stomach to think about it. Right. Cool. Cool. I think... Uh... Is it cool? this has been the 10th episode i plan on coming back with at least 10 more whoa whoa hashtag 2017 goals yeah exactly man it's uh it's been so awesome just uh seeing that there's been listener response from his stuff it was if it was just like my parents listening to this show i i would not have done it for 10 episodes but you know each of these is getting you know dozens of downloads dozens of listens and stuff which um is is great more than dozens yeah yeah i mean like it's just it's been so awesome and i honestly like wasn't really expecting the show to like really be getting those numbers within just a couple of months of debuting so it's just it's so great. For the upcoming episodes, I'm just going to throw it out there now that there's about a 75% chance that we're going to have a multi-part episode on Casey Anthony coming up. I feel like I will be a very interested listener in how you approach that. Right. I am a little intimidated by that story because it's there's so much controversy surrounding it and so much information and misinformation out there about it. But I just ordered this book off Amazon. I'm going to read this book. And if it maintains my interest, I will come back to you all with, uh, with a story about it because for that story, you know, um, it was such a huge deal and I, tried to follow it on the news and stuff when like as the events were unfolding in like the late uh 2000s early 2010s but i i just there's so much missing there and i would really like to know more so it could be a nice learning experience yeah i also as a guest star occasionally and a frequent (laughs) listener um if you guys have any ideas for future stories for keegan definitely send them in or post them on facebook it's interesting to hear what people who are interested in true crime want to hear about yeah yeah 100 i mean you can always reach me on twitter at down home fear if you want to post something on the facebook group and you know get the message to me that way that's totally fine you can email me at downhomefear at gmail.com as well. And we always want to hear uh, more ideas, more thoughts, any any sort of feedback that you have. It's all very, very much appreciated. If you like the show, uh, remember to subscribe, tell your friends about it, and help us keep getting new listeners. And We're going to be posting a... Yes. A uh, question for you guys related to the Jamestown story on Facebook because we yeah. wanted to explore what you guys think, uh, how you think the American legal system as well as, you know, American society, news media, etc. would react to a situation mm-hmm. like what happened in Jamestown with survival cannibalism um, in America today. <laughs> um, yeah, I, so she'll get the question to me and I'll post it on the Facebook group on her behalf. And I think it's a really interesting discussion point. So if you want to check that out 
and chime in and, and let us know your, your thoughts about it. Uh, that, that would be awesome. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed hashtag Christmas cannibalism. <laughs> Christmas cannibalism. I'm not sure if that's how this show is going to be branded, but... Sure. Uh, I'd like to thank Amy for coming back on yeah, for her thanks. third episode, what, what, what? which is crazy. <laughs> so awesome. Always a pleasure to yeah. have you on. And thank you so much for coming up with this podcast and putting out <laughs> 10 episodes in 2016. I'm really looking forward to the next 10 in 2017. All right. Well, thank you all. And, um, you know, we'll be back soon. Happy New Year.